and hallelujah. Father, only those who have felt the weight and the burden of sin can freely rejoice at that sound, at the sound of the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that everyone here, everyone in the sound of my voice, knows that particular joy that Jesus Christ is our living hope. If that's not the case, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they make that discovery, they make that decision. Lord, we thank you for who you are, for what you've done, the hope and the life that you give us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. So it was in 1905, at the age of 26, 26, I haven't seen 26 in many a decade, that Albert Einstein developed an equation that we all know, E equals MC squared. And that changed the world as, uh, as we know it. In fact, such that, I don't know if you can see it or not, but were this uh, paper clip that I hold in my hand to release all the energy contained within, it would be equivalent to somewhere between a 10 and 15 uh, kiloton nuclear bomb. Staggering what he did. And many stand in awe of what he did by demonstrating mathematically that energy Matter, space, and time are all aspects of the same thing. Now, <laughs> caveat here, I do not in any way claim to understand what Einstein did. And, and, and the truth is, I guess that most people can only parrot what he came up with, and even those who do understand it, understand only because he first explained it. I doubt seriously they could have come up with it on their own. However, I will make a bold claim. I do know what Einstein was doing, and I know why he was doing it. Einstein was seeking a theory that unified all the forces in nature. In fact, he devoted his entire life to describing all the fundamental forces into a single theoretical framework. So just to pursue that another step, currently there are four, I guess some argue there are five, there's a strong force, a weak force, electromagnetism, and gravity. And Albert Einstein's mind simply would not allow him to accept that there were separate and independent forces out there that could not in some way be unified. He and others have spent their entire lives trying to figure this out. They're trying to figure out a unified field in which electromagnetism and gravity emerge as merely different aspects of a single field. To date, they've all failed. Nobody's been able to do this. Gravity is, metaphorically speaking, too uh, heavy for any attempts to lift it. Uh, so Einstein said this. So 
he got his Nobel Prize, I believe, in 1921. He spoke about it in 1923. And he said this, A second problem, which at present is the subject of lively interest, is the identity between the gravitational field and the electromagnetic field. The mind striving after unification of the theory cannot be satisfied that two fields should exist which by their nature are quite independent. You see, Einstein felt very strongly that all nature could be described by a single theory. And he was motivated by an intellectual need to unify the forces of nature. And the thing is is this is the same problem that all people have who think deeply about any subject. As Christians, we study the Bible, and we're aware of literally hundreds, some who have studied more in depth, perhaps even thousands of things that God desires and expects of us and how we should live our lives on a daily basis. And sometimes we have a difficult time with that. And we ask, God, what do you want me to do? What would you have me to believe? What's the most important thing? I mean, you know, in the United States alone, we have over 200 denominations in Christianity. I mean, somebody drive a stake in the ground. Stop it. Uh, seriously, are they all right? Are any of them right? I hope at least one is. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Conrad Lorenz, an Australian zoologist, said this, Philosophers are people who know less and less about more and more until they know nothing about absolutely everything. Scientists, on the other hand, are people who know and more, know more and more about less and less until they know everything about absolutely nothing. I mean, isn't that another way of what the Apostle Paul was faced with on Mars Hill, as recorded in the, the book of Acts? When we don't have a stable reference point, we're just washed to and fro. We're just moved about by the ocean or, or for us, the wind that we've been experiencing, for some of us, maybe even just a like you would blow out a birthday candle. We're uncertain. We want to place a stake in the ground and say we will not be moved. Isn't that a part of the whole problem that COVID has presented with us? One mask, no mask, two masks. Can I have three? Six feet, ten feet. It stays on surfaces. Yeah, it doesn't stay on surfaces. Okay. So on and so on. Someone drive a stake in the ground. I mean, someone might say, someone here, might argue that that's uh, silliness, uh, John. To argue for any certainty uh, in life demonstrates uh, a lack of maturity. I mean, life, by its very nature, is uncertain. Yeah, well, that may be true, but gravity's not. Better be glad it's working this morning. Yeah, that, that, and is, for us, is there any gravity to be found from Scripture that's going to help us to understand these things, particularly of what's truly important? Thankfully, there is. And one of the things of which I am certain is found in Mark 12, 28 through 34. 
I'm going to say a couple of more things, but go ahead and turn there and I'll read it in a second. I mean, here in this passage, we find a question that few of us understand today. And we don't understand the question because, number one, we didn't live in that historical context. And number two, we have 2,000 years of Christian teaching that, uh, and indeed, uh, some of you have probably memorized these very verses. However, what we see here is more than Einstein's uh, E equals uh, MC squared. In fact, it is a, the spiritual equivalent of a fully developed unified theory, not only of spirituality, but I believe ultimately of the universe. The very splinter that would not allow Einstein to rest would also not allow the Jewish mind to rest either, particularly in one scribe's mind. So let's look at Mark 12, 28 through 34. It may seem somewhat of a diversion from our commandments, but as we'll see, it's actually embedded right in the middle of it. Plus, it's talking about love, Valentine's Day, so... Anyway, we like to blend these things together as best as possible. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw, he answered wisely. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any questions. Now. Jesus had been getting a lot of questions uh, that day. The distinguished uh, scientist uh, Isidore Rabi, another uh, Nobel Prize winner in, uh, as a physicist in 1944, he noted that he had become a scientist uh, not because of his love of science necessarily, but because of his mom. So most Moms, apparently, in his day, when they would come home from school, they would well, and I don't even know what to say here, because I suppose you could listen in on, on the, uh, the Zoom calls with the teachers now. You could know. But the question is, what did you learn today? Well, she never asked that question. Apparently, not once. Her question was this. Did you ask a good question today? In other words, her concern was, did you have a good question to ask? And he had learned that the importance of asking good questions 
had more to do than asking interesting questions, had more to do than asking questions of things that were a passion or a desire to him. It had to do with finding the truth. It had to do with asking not just good questions, but right questions with the right motive. And here in chapter 12, there's no exception. I mean, in this context, we have to distinguish uh, what's the difference between a good question, a genuine question, and a question that is may sound technically right, but it's actually a, a, a inauthentic and a poor question. Now, we have to understand a little bit of the context here. The timing is Wednesday of Passion Week. In other words, Jesus Christ had just a few days earlier come in the triumphal entry. He's now debating in the temple. Mark 12 or Mark 11 tells us that's where he's at even right now. So you understand that on Friday, uh, Jesus would die on the cross. So it's important for us to understand that these are among his final words. These are among his final acts, and our Savior knew this. In 12, uh, 1 through 11, uh, Jesus had told a parable in which he, he just blasted the religious leaders. He talked about the care of a vineyard and how the care of that vineyard was in the, the hands of his the, as they understood it, and they knew quite well what he was talking about them, the Pharisees and, and the religious leaders there, and ultimately that the owner, i.e. God, had sent his own son into the vineyard. They took him out, they beat him, and they killed him, and they said, okay, now the uh, owner will leave us alone. And so the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the day, the rulers, they were enraged. And all they wanted to do was make Jesus dead, period. But there was a problem. And the problem was is that there were thousands of people who were hanging on Jesus every word. And it says, not here, but in other scriptures, that they would have killed him. They would have killed him right then and there. But they were afraid of the crowd. They were afraid of the people. You know, and any of you have ever been in a, a, a riot or a huge number of people uh, when King Hussein returned uh, to uh, Jordan from the United States for his uh, cancer treatment, he was met, uh, us among them, uh, only two blocks away from the Queen Mother's house because that's the area where we live by two million people. I don't know if you can even fathom what that feels like, but I will say this, uh, there is a certain amount of fear that's present. <laughs> uh, I remember one rock star, date myself and my pre-Christian age, where he just says to the crowd as he's on a stage, don't move. <laughs> just don't move. Don't move. And the Jews felt that very much. They were afraid of the crowd. And Jesus blasted them, and they wanted to come up with an answer. They were afraid with the crowd, so they went back. They schemed together, and they came up with a bunch of questions. 
to ask him because they wanted to make him look like a heretic. They wanted to make him look like he was uneducated or a fool. They wanted to embarrass him publicly. So first they sent a Herodian, some Herodian Pharisees, to ask a question about taxes. Let's just get him all tied up with the government here. This will be a good one. And so they wanted to trip him up. Jesus handled that. And then they sent him some Sadducees to trip him up about the resurrection. Now, just for your awareness, the, just the evil of these people, just, just honestly. They sent deliberately the Sadducees to discuss the resurrection with Jesus when everyone knows that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. I mean, that's just the, it's, it's really, it's just disgusting what was happening here. And Jesus handled uh, them as well. And finally, they sent, as it were, the, the best for last, the scribe, the, the, the lawyer, the religious lawyer. He comes to ask the most impossible of questions. The Einstein of questions. Of all the laws, which commandment was the most important? Now you would, you might immediately think, as well you should, that one of the most important commandments would come from the Ten Commandments. Hmm. It does, sort of, but not. So this was a problem for these people. In fact, uh, yeah, I mean, the first two questioners that came, it, it, you can read uh, sometime the whole of uh, chapter 12. It, they weren't bad questions they, in the sense of technically they were good questions to ask, but they were dishonest in their intent. They were seeking an answer. I mean, they weren't seeking an answer. They were seeking an answer, but not in a genuine sense. They wanted to achieve something else. They wanted to, to trap him. You, all of you know what I'm talking about because at some point, whether it was in school or, or elsewhere, someone has, has uh, sought you out to embarrass you with a question or to win an argument with a question, to set you up with a question. Sadly, this happens too often in relationships, particularly in marriages. Those kinds of questions are not good questions. They're not genuine questions. But this scribe, as he was watching, he had his question from the Sanhedrin. Matthew tells us this, by the way. I just didn't take the time to go over there. So he had his question. He was locked and he was loaded and he was ready to go. But there was something else that was happening. He was standing, watching Jesus handle these other questions. And he's going, this guy's, this guy's got something. He, he's seeing, the scripture tells us, seeing that he answered the questions well. Now, I'll explain uh, why later, but I think his bad question turned into a good question before he asked it. And that was through the observation of Christ's testimony there in the temple grounds. I mean, verse 28, you think about this. The words of Scripture are precious and they are few. Even John tells us that the works of Christ couldn't be recorded in all the books in, in, in the libraries in, of the world. 
So what we have is very particular data that's given to us for a reason. And verse 28 gives an editorial comment, essentially, that leads me to believe that there's much more to this man's story, which we'll never know, by the way, until glory. But it says this, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing the scripture. I mean, and the scripture could stop easily right there. And he came up and he heard them disputing. All right, so that's, okay, enter the scribe, stage left or stage right, whatever it is. But scripture doesn't stop there. It went on to say the scribe saw that Jesus answered them well. Now, how does the writer of scripture know what the scribe was thinking? The, I mean, these are the kind of things that aren't said that you have to figure out. One could say, well, the Holy Spirit revealed that to the person, and may, perhaps that's to the writer. Uh, perhaps that's uh, true, but I tend to think that something more is going on here, because that editorial comment does not move the Sanhedrin's narrative forward. It moves Christ's story forward. And it seems to me this fellow began to become genuinely interested in how Jesus is going to answer his question. So, okay, a little more, a little more background about this question. You got the question, right? You know, okay, so what's the most important commandment? All right, seems uh, simple, but we do need a little a bit of background. So we've been going through the Decalogue. The Decalogue is another uh, term for the Ten Commandments. Next week, we're going to be in the Fifth Commandment. So if you want to know what honoring father and mother are, please do uh, show up. And not that you've ever counted, although some of you may have. Um, I will confess that I never have. And I probably will not. I'm going to take it by faith that in the Decalogue, there are the Ten Commandments in Hebrew. There are 613 letters. So you could get your little interlinear if you wanted to. And you could start in, there in Exodus 20 and you could count the letters and you will come up with 613. Therefore, the ancient Jews determined that if there are 613 letters in the Decalogue, then obviously there are 613 laws that are to be uncovered. And so they made it so. There was one negative commandment for each day. So there's 365 negative commandments. And then there are 248 positive commandments. They assumed that, you know, we have to, the negative is, you know, something, don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other thing. Okay, we get the don'ts pretty good. But on the other hand, we've been 248 generations since Adam, so we have to say something good about that. So then there are 248 positive commands, and there you have the 613 laws. Now, culturally, because we weren't there, we don't understand that the importance of these laws was hotly debated, hotly debated. In fact, if Twitter was then, it would be trending. It would be Twitter, would be, which is the most important commandment? There was literally, now you may not believe this because we have 2,000 years of 
Christian history to tell us otherwise, there was literally no common understanding or acceptance as to what the most important commandment was. None. I mean, Jesus even pokes fun at the Pharisees that same day. It was earlier in that day, but that same day in Matthew 23, 23, when he pronounces a woe on them. He pronounces a woe on them. And the reason is he pulls one. Actually, he pulls uh, several of these laws out from these 613. And he says this. He pronounces a woe and he calls them hypocrites because they were scrupulous about tithing dill and mint and cumin. And yet they completely ignored the weightier aspects of the law, such as justice and mercy and faithfulness. I mean, the Pharisees would get wrapped around the axle about diet and food, but when it came to figuring out what real spiritual priorities were, they could not do it. So what you have here is, I mean, for example, if you've studied the, the cultural element in this time and, and, and you're looking at the comparisons, okay, well, what did rabbis teach back then? What you discover is uh, you, you will have run across the name of Rabbi Hillel. Okay, so he's the big, he's the big guy. Now, just 20 years earlier, they asked him the same question. Okay, here was his answer. This was his answer. Okay, this is the big guy. This is the guy that they would have compared everything that Jesus said to him. So here was his answer. What you would not want done to you, do not do to your neighbor. This is the essence of the law. Everything else is a mere commentary on it. Okay, kind of golden rulish sort of sideways, kind of from a negative perspective. I mean, but seriously, what you do not want to do, don't do. Uh, okay, all right. There, but I want you to notice something. There's no mention of God. There's no mention of faith. There's no mention of obedience. There's no mention of none of that stuff. It was a commandment of negatives. And besides that, what if you're a sicko? Excuse my phraseology, but what if, what if you really like kind of, you know, bad stuff done to you? I mean, what, it's completely entirely subjective, in other words. It's based on what you want or what you don't want. Who cares what you want or what you don't want outside of the Lord? We're to want and not want that which the Lord wants and does not want. So that's the competition right there. There's the competition. It's a bit lacking. What Jesus did was he quoted Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Now, every Israelite knows this passage by heart. They recited it then every day. They recite it today every day. Many Christians recite this. It's just such a wonderful passage. And, and that was his answer. He wasn't done there, though. He added what that which was not asked for. He gave the second one, which, okay, so now it's, it's uh, the Lord our God is, is one and uh, to love and uh, him and then love your neighbor as yourself. So this combination summarized the law in a way that actually made sense. It captured the whole thing. God wants both love for him and love 
for others, but the love of God comes first. Loving others, our ability to love, this is an interesting cycle that we have because our ability to love others only stems from God's love toward us. We can love because he loved, and yet, how do we know that we love God? It's demonstrated by our love for others. So you have this, you have this beautifully simple understanding of what this is all about. It's absolutely a tremendous way of looking at life. Love comes from God. We love others. Our love of others demonstrates that we love God. Now, this answer blew the scribe away. Blew him away. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much, uh, it's, is much more than all uh, whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now you have to know, and maybe you've been wondering this yourself, I seriously part company with most commentators on this whole passage. This whole passage preached by most people, understood by most people, is the guy didn't get it and he didn't get anything at all. In fact, it's uh, they push towards legalism. Uh, they argue that he did not change and that what he was actually saying was some little paternalistic pat-pat on the head. Yes, yes, young Padawan. You, you finally understand what I've understood for many, many years. And uh, no, I don't believe that at all. I, I believe that this man's heart was in the midst of change right here. I don't buy that. I don't think the scribe was patronizing uh, Jesus at all. I think the penny dropped. I believe that that scribe saw Jesus in entirely new light. So why do I say that? Obviously, Scripture. But what in Scripture is it that I see where I can say something like that? Look what his answer was. Summarize, summarize, summarize what any good lawyer would do, right? So he's, that's, he's just showing, I got it, I got it, I got it. But then he says something else. He says, in addition to loving God and loving your neighbor, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That is a staggering statement. That is a staggering statement because Mark 11 tells us that they're in the midst of the temple at this moment and what's going on around them sacrifices everywhere you look, whole burnt offerings were taking place. I don't have to take any creative license at all, not one whit, to believe that as he says this, he's looking around. You've spoken well, and it's much more than burnt offerings. It's much more than sacrifices. He got it. Now, he doesn't know what he's got yet, and unfortunately, we never know if he ever gets it the whole way, but he sure got that. He certainly got that. The penny dropped, and the penny that dropped for him was an understanding that God is not simply a God of laws that we're obedient to, but that God is a God of love, and that love is what allows us to love others. This scribe came to trip him up, And I think 
that Jesus Christ tripped the scribe up. And Christ says something at the very end here. He looked at him. He looked at him and he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. I don't know how many out there now online or will watch a recording someday that have not yet trusted Christ. But simply imagine for Christ to tell you that you're not far. And the scribe saw something that many miss. And that penny that dropped was for him to see something different. And that is he moved beyond the 613 letters found in the Decalogue to the mercy and the grace and the compassion of God Almighty. I showed you the moon, you only saw my finger. He lifted his eyes from the finger to the moon. He began to see the real picture, and I pray that that happens to you as well. Now, there are some things that we can take from this on that negative side, and, and that is true. Knowledge of God law, God's laws is not enough to save, pure and simple. I mean, all who debated with Jesus, all the people who debated with Jesus that day, they knew the Bible better than we. I mean, the Old Testament, uh, doubtless many of them had the whole thing memorized. Now, we don't do that much today, but they did back then. I mean, literally, word for word, the entirety of uh, the Old Testament. They knew the law. They did. Second, even agreement with God's law is no assurance of salvation. I mean, remember, I mean, the Pharisees couldn't distinguish between the smell of mint and the smell of injustice. Even today, some brutalize others with the truth of God's law and forget the weightier issues of mercy and compassion and love. I was reminded just this week of something I had heard years ago, Dr. Warren Wiersbe say, truth without love is brutality and love without truth is hypocrisy. So what is the way? Jesus Christ. The scribe came to Jesus. Did he come close enough? I mean, I think that ultimately, we're not told, I think that ultimately he did. But we don't know. It is clear that something happened. It's not clear that he saw himself as a sinner in need of salvation. I don't know. Is he a scribe only seeking wisdom? I don't know. I like to think it's larger than that. But the greater question for us, for you and me right now, is have you come to him? I mean, the difference between being near the kingdom of God and being in the kingdom of God <laughs> reminds me of, uh, some of you will appreciate this, others you'll go, who in the world is he talking about? Uh, Maxwell Smart missed it by that much. So today... Of course, that meant he missed it by a mile. I mean, so today, Valentine's Day, a day we speak easily of love, it comes down to this. What do you do with Jesus? You don't want to miss him by that much. You don't want to miss him at all. Is he a, simply a, a great teacher or is he a savior? Do you see him for who he is and what he did? Or do you merely admire him? for how he lived his life and what he taught. Standing before Jesus, the scribe saw him in a new way, that's for certain, but did he see him as the Messiah? Did he see God's anointed when he passed by? It's easy to miss. I missed him for years. 
Perhaps you did as well. Paul said in Galatians 4, God sent forth, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus was there to pull him out from under the law by taking his place. So even though the scribe's eternal destiny remains a mystery, your eternal destiny does not need to have any question mark at all. You can put a stake in the ground on your salvation based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for your sin. Jesus didn't come to give us tips how to live. He didn't come to make us more legalistic and into ourselves than we already are. He came to save us. He came to give us life. He didn't come to show us how to be kind to others. He came to rescue us from sin and death and the crushing weight, not just of the law, but of our own heaping of guilt that we lay upon ourselves as a result of the fall. He came to free us. He came, as he said in John 10, to be the door by which you enter the kingdom of God. I am the door, he said. He came to have his flesh torn, his blood poured, so that you could be cleansed and filled with hope. He suffered the separation on the cross from very God, so that you and I could have peace that we do not deserve. You see, Mr. Einstein, there is a unifying principle in the universe, and his name is Jesus. Father, we are incredibly grateful to witness in some ways, even though 2,000 years later, the transformation of one whose intent and whose design was to trip and make a mockery of Jesus Christ, and yet, at least for a moment, was stopped dead in his tracks by Christ himself. And he told him, you're not far. Lord, if there's one who is hearing that call in their heart today from Jesus, you are not far. Let them take the step. One little step of faith in Jesus Christ that will result in eternity of being in his presence. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.